Psalm 9. Hear then the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the wicked. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly acknowledge that we come now before the King and the Judge of all the earth. And we tremble in your presence while at the same time we draw near to you with joy and with confidence. Because we know that we have no right in and of ourselves to come. But yet because of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection, all the work that he has done on our behalf, we can now come with confidence and boldness, Father, knowing that you will speak to us as your children. And so we pray now that you would empower us by your Spirit so that we would have the eyes of faith to not just hear mere information, but behold the glory of our God and our King. 
Strengthen our faith during this time, we pray, so that the gospel might go forward from this place and resound to the farthest corners of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit, one of the things that I've been ruminating and meditating on, is how one of the hardest parts about being a Christian is obeying our calling to walk by faith and not by sight. Which is interesting to think about, right? That this is one of the hardest parts about being a Christian. Because the reality is that one could easily argue that walking by faith and not by sight is the entirety of the Christian life, right? And yet even so, as Christians, this is one of our greatest struggles, isn't it? Because it's the struggle to live not according to our own experience and not according to our own thoughts or feelings or our own interpretation of the things around us, but instead to live according to what God has said is true in His Word. And that's a real struggle for us, isn't it? It's been a struggle ever since our first parents ate of the fruit in the garden. And the reason I've been thinking about that so much lately is because personally, I've been struggling with that, probably more than usual. Because when I read God's Word, and I love to read God's Word, I'm reminded that God is in control of all things, and that He has all the rulers of all the nations in His hands, and that He ordains Everything that comes to pass, from the smallest of events to the greatest. See, I know that all of that is true, as God's word makes it known to me. But then, when I go out and live my life, and and I look at the world around me, it doesn't actually seem that way. My experience doesn't line up with God's word, oftentimes. Because from my perspective... It seems like our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil are calling all the shots. From my perspective, it looks like the entire world is going to hell in a handbasket. In other words, oftentimes it doesn't seem or feel like God is in control. Even though His Word says that He is, and even though we know that that's true, Because at times, it doesn't appear as though He is ruling over our enemies, but rather that our enemies are ruling and reigning over us. And you see, what can happen as a result of this, when when this is the experience that we're having, is that we can begin to doubt, and we can begin to fear, and we can begin to live as though God isn't actually the king and judge of all the earth. And brothers and sisters, if we're ever tempted to live like that, it's certainly in these days, isn't it? It's in the days that we currently find ourselves living in. And so the question that we must ask ourselves then is how Do we walk by faith and not by sight in days 
such as these dark days? How do we live our lives not according to our own experience and perception and feelings, but instead according to what God says is true in his word? How do we do that? We see the glorious thing about the psalm that lies before us now is that it actually shows us how. It shows us how to walk by faith and not by sight. Because in this psalm, David finds himself in a situation where it seems as though his enemies have the upper hand. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that if you look at verse 13, David says that he thinks he's at the very gates of death itself. And yet, even though it seems that way, and even though it feels that way for David, he is still walking by faith and not by sight. And so what I want us to see then this morning is how we too can learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And what we're going to discover is that the key to doing so is in remembering three truths about God. We need to remember three truths about God in order to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to remember that God is worthy of praise. We need to remember that God will judge his enemies. And we need to remember that God will rescue his people. Those are the truths that we need to remember in order to walk by faith and not by sight. God's praiseworthiness, God's justice, and God's deliverance. So let's look then at each one of those. First, let's look at how we need to remember that God is worthy of praise. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. To the choir master... According to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now as we read these opening verses, we should be immediately amazed at David's response here. Because remember, David is experiencing incredible persecution at the hands of his enemies. And we can see that throughout the entire psalm. Because if you look at verse 5, David describes his enemies as being wicked. And in verse 9, he mentions that he's oppressed and troubled by them. In verse 13, he says that they hate him. And then in the closing verse, verse 20 he describes his enemies as fearless. In other words, what's abundantly clear here is that David is being pursued to the very gates of death itself by his fearless and ruthless and barbaric enemies. And so his life is actually in danger. That's the situation that David is in as he writes this psalm. And yet here he is. In these opening verses, praising God profusely from the very depths of his heart. And you can see that in the very words that he uses here. Because he says that he's thankful in verse 1. And that he's glad in verse 2. And that he's exulting or rejoicing. And he's even singing. Now I don't know about you, but personally that's a little shocking to me. Because if I was in David's situation, and I had an enemy that was pursuing me and trying to kill me, I don't know that my first response would be that of thankfulness. 
or wholehearted worship, or even to be glad and sing. As a matter of fact, to my own shame, I'm fairly certain that my first response would be to grumble or complain about it, or to ask God, God, why are you doing this to me? So I wouldn't respond in faith. It's highly likely that my first response would rather be to respond in sin. But you see, that's not how David responds here. Instead, what David does is he makes the conscious decision. He resolves his will to react in the way that he knows that he should. In other words, David doesn't respond this way because he's, he's caught up in some emotional experience. That's not why David's worshiping. He's choosing to respond this way. And you can see that very easily in the text because what does he say again and again in those first two verses? He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Four times. And so what David is telling us then is that his response is a matter of his will. It's a matter of his volition. And what David has decided to do is he has committed himself to worshiping God no matter what his circumstances. Even if that involves his enemies trying to kill him, still David is resolved to worship God. And I wonder, Christians... Have we resolved ourselves to do the same? Have we wholeheartedly committed ourselves to worshiping God regardless of our circumstances or feelings? Have we? We see that's an important question for us to answer. Because if we haven't devoted ourselves to praising God in everything, then I don't know that we can say that we've ever truly worshiped God. Because in order to truly worship God, you must purpose to do that. Worshiping Him must be your aim, your focus, your intent, your goal. Because if it's not, then what's happening in your worship is that you're simply getting caught up or carried along in some religious experience. But you see, there's no true spiritual life in that. Because even unbelievers can get caught up in, in mere religious feelings. I, I see it all the time. And so I pray that God would spare us from such delusions. And instead, that he would grant to us the grace to decidedly make it our aim to worship him in spirit and in truth. To be committed to remembering that God is always worthy of our praise, no matter how we feel and no matter what is happening in our lives. Because you see, that's exactly what David's resolve was, and that's to be our resolve as well. Now, having said all that, we also need to remember why God is worthy of praise, why he's worthy of our worship. And David actually tells us why. He says that God is worthy of praise because of what God has done and because of who God is. In other words, we should worship God because of His works and because of His character for both of those reasons. 
So let's look, briefly look at both of these then. First, God's work, and then his character. First of all, in verse 1, David says, I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. And you see, the wondrous deeds that David is talking about there are God's works. They're God's works of creation and redemption all throughout the pages of Scripture. And they're also the works that God has done in David's own lifetime. And so these wonderful deeds then are all the works that God has accomplished both in Israel's history and also in David's own life. And what David is saying here is that he is devoted to remembering those marvelous works. Because in so doing, David is not only praising and worshiping God, he's also strengthening his faith. He's grounding his faith in the truth that just as God has delivered his people in the past, so too he will deliver his people again in the future. And so that's why David is recounting God's wondrous deeds here. And Christians, I hope this goes without saying. But we should be committed to doing the same thing, shouldn't we? We should make it our regular habit to remember God's wondrous deeds throughout the Scripture and also in our own lives. Because what those works remind us of is that we have every reason to be confident in God. Because since He's been faithful then, He will also be faithful now. And so I encourage you, make the wondrous deeds of our God your constant meditation. Throughout the day, remember creation and remember the flood. Remember the exodus and remember God's provision for his people as they wandered in the wilderness. And of course, remember Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension because these are the wondrous deeds of God. But don't just let it stop there because we should also remember the Lord's faithfulness in our own lives. Remember the specific instances of how He has provided for you and cared for you and protected you because you see, by recounting God's wondrous deeds, you are reminding yourself that He is worthy of praise. So first of all, God's works remind us that He's worthy of praise. And then second of all, God's character reminds us that He's worthy of praise. And we see that very clearly in verse 2. Because David says, I will be glad and exult in you. That is, in who you are, God. I will sing praise to your name, that is, in your character, O Most High. In other words, what David is saying here is that God deserves to be worshipped because he is glorious in his character. And so praise is due unto the Lord simply because of who he is. And who is the Lord? Well, he is holy and eternal and unchanging and impassable, and infinite, and all-powerful, and everywhere present, and all-wise, and all-knowing. And He is of, of one essence, 
while at the same time being triune in his personhood. And he is self-existent and self-sufficient and immaterial and good and loving and gracious and merciful and just and sovereign and jealous. This is who our God is. And you see, David is remembering these things about God because in the midst of his suffering, he's rejoicing in the fact that God is all that he truly needs. And so even though his enemies may strip him of absolutely everything, David knows that they can never strip him of the one true living God who has entered into covenant with him. In other words, David is meditating on the truth that God is glorious and that God is David's glory. And brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves of the exact same truth because God is our glory as well. And so as a result, our thoughts should constantly be filled with the character of our glorious God and how he has graciously given himself to us in the gospel. Because no matter what's happening in our lives, and no matter what our enemies may take from us, that never changes. God is always ours, and God is always glorious. And so we need to meditate on who he is, because he is our glory. So what we've seen then, is that the first way we learn to walk by faith and not by sight is remembering that God is worthy of praise. And the reason He's worthy of praise is because of what He's done throughout history and because of who He is in His character. And so now that we've looked at the first way that we can learn to walk by faith and not by sight, let's look now at the second way, which is that we are to remember that God will judge His enemies. God will judge his enemies. And we see that in verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Then jump down with me to verses 15 through 17 because David picks up the same idea of God judging his enemies in those two verses. Verses 15 through 17. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Now in these two sections of Psalm 9, verses 3 through 6 and 15 through 17, what David is focusing on is a very specific aspect of God's character and his work. And what he's focusing on specifically is God's justice, that God judges his enemies. 
And the reason David makes that his specific focus, the reason he makes God's justice his specific focus, is because David is longing for justice himself. Because his enemies are unjustly persecuting him. And he wants God to bring justice down upon their heads. And so the way that David encourages himself is by remembering that God has brought judgment on his enemies in the past. And therefore, God will also bring judgment on his enemies again in the future. Because in verses 3 through 6, David references God's past judgment of his enemies. And then in verses 15 through 17, David references God's future judgment of his enemies. And so we're going to look at both of these because they're very important for us to understand. So first of all, in verses 3 through 6, again, David is remembering how the Lord has judged his enemies in the past. And the reason why God has judged David's enemies is because, as verse 4 says, God sits on his throne as judge. And he sits on his throne as the judge of all mankind. And like any judge, his actions proceed from his character. And so since God is righteous in his character, his judgments are also righteous. And so because that's true, God has maintained and upheld David's just cause against his enemies. And he has judged David's enemies for their injustice. And what that judgment looks like is that David's enemies have been completely and utterly destroyed. And we can see that in verses 5 through 6. Because God has punished them so thoroughly that their cities will never, ever be rebuilt again. And the very memory of them is to be completely forgotten. That's how devastating God's judgment was. But what all this tells us then is that David knows from firsthand experience that God is just and that he punishes those who are unrepentantly continuous in their evil and their sin and their wickedness, especially in their persecution of God's people. And you see, remembering that brought David incredible comfort because right now it seemed as though David's enemies would prevail. Because right now, it seemed as though injustice was ruling the day and that justice was being trampled upon. In other words, it didn't seem like God was ruling as the judge and king of all the earth. But you see, David knows that isn't true. And so to combat those lies, David reminds himself that God is still a good king who sits on a throne of judgment over all the nations of the earth. And that just as he crushed David's enemies before, he will also crush David's enemies again in the future because God is a just judge. And Christians, we need to remind ourselves of that exact same truth today because we too can look back in the pages of Scripture And be encouraged to see how God judged the enemies of his people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Because you see, the reality is that now that Jesus has come, our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil have been conquered. Because Jesus conquered the flesh 
when he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he lived in the flesh and then died in the flesh. And so now that he has done that, through our union with him, by grace through faith, we have died to the flesh. And Jesus conquered the world when he came and he refused to bow his knee to it. And so now that he has done that, in him we have been freed from our bondage to this world and its ways. And Jesus conquered the devil when he withstood his many temptations throughout his entire life. And so now that he has done that, in him, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of Jesus' glorious light. And so we need to remember that, Christians, because at times it's going to seem like the flesh and the world and the devil have the upper hand, even in our own lives. And so when it seems that way, we need to remind ourselves of the truth that Jesus has brought judgment upon our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil. And he has crushed them by his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and ascension. Now that doesn't mean that we don't still have to wrestle with those enemies. Obviously we still do. But what it does mean is that because of Jesus, we are no longer in bondage to our enemies. And so we fight against them, knowing that, remembering that Jesus has judged them. But that's not all we need to remember. We also need to remember that God will judge his enemies in the future. And we see that in verses 15 through 17. But what's interesting is if you, you give 15 through 17 a glance, we've now read it twice, so hopefully you can remember some of the, the language there. It, it sounds like David's talking about something that's already happened. Because everything's in the, the past tense, especially in verses 15 through 16. Because David says that the nations have sunk in the pit, and that their foot has been caught, and that the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. And you see, that's all in the past tense. And so the key then to understanding how it's futuristic is to look at verse 17. Because verse 17 makes it plain that even though David speaks as though God has already judged the unrepentant nations fully and finally in verses 15 through 16, that's actually still to come. And so that's why verse 17 says, the nations shall return to Sheol. David says it shall happen because it hasn't, in fact, happened yet. As a matter of fact, David's prayer in the closing of this psalm in verses 19 and 20 wouldn't even make any sense if God had already brought this final judgment upon his enemies. And so how we're to understand this then is that David knows that the final judgment of his enemies is so certain that he can speak of it as if it's already happened, even though it's still to come. That's how confident David is in God's impending full and final judgment. And so that's what David is looking forward to here. He's remembering that a day is coming, the great day of the Lord, 
when all the nations that forget God, all of God's enemies, and all of David's enemies too, will be judged and cast into hell. That was David's hope. That was what he was looking forward to. And you see, Christians, that's to be our hope as well. Because our hope is not to be in our vain attempts to try to control our own little worlds. And our hope is not to be in electing just the right presidential candidate. As a matter of fact, our hope is not to be ultimately in anything in this world. Because this world and its desires are passing away. They're here one day and they're gone the next. Instead, our hope is to be in Jesus and in his return. Because when Jesus returns, all that is wrong will be made right. Because Jesus comes to eradicate all that is wicked and evil and sinful and rebellious. And he comes to fully and finally wipe out our enemies, which are the flesh and the world and the devil. Indeed, Jesus comes again to make all things new. Which means then that it's not a politician that we're waiting for. It's Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And you see, if we don't realize that, then what's going to happen is just like the world, we're going to be chasing all of these face, false and vain hopes. That's what the world does from one false, vain hope to the next. And if we don't realize that our hope is in the return of Christ, we're going to be caught up in the exact same thing. So remember that sovereign grace. Meditate on that and rest in that because that's a vital part of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. So what we've seen then so far is that we are to walk by faith and not by sight by remembering God's promises, sorry, to remember that God is worthy of praise, although that's not a bad one to throw out there either, is it? By remembering that God will judge his enemies, and then lastly, we are to remember that God will rescue his people. Look at verses 7 through 14 with me again. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with uprightness. He judges the people's with righteousness. I flipped those, but that's okay. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And then jump down to verses 18 through 20 with me because David continues to talk about how God rescues his people. Verses 18 through 20. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are 
but men. Selah. Now what's amazing here is that right out of the gate in verse 14, David gives us this glorious vision of God by contrasting him, the Lord, to David's enemies. And here's the contrast. While David's enemies are completely eradicated and eternally forgotten, the Lord in the meantime sits enthroned forever. And he has established his throne for justice. And so what David is showing us here is this glorious vision of how pitiful fallen man is and how awfully majestic the Lord is. What a contrast. But here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Why doesn't this vision frighten David? I mean, isn't David a sinner just like his enemies? Well, the answer to that is obviously yes. David is a sinner just like his enemies. But the difference is that God has graciously saved David. And how God has graciously saved David is on the merit of the coming Messiah that had been promised. Because what the Messiah would do is he would live the perfect life that David had failed to. And he would be judged in David's place for his sins. And so because David knew that, because David knew the gospel, he could rejoice in a God who judges the world with righteousness and the people's with uprightness. Not because David thought that he could pass God's judgment on the basis of his own good works, but rather because David knew that the coming Messiah would be judged in his place and perfectly fulfill the law on his behalf so that David could not only be forgiven, but also declared as righteous before God himself. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's also true for us. We no longer have to fear God as our judge. Because in love, He sent Jesus to be judged in our place on the cross. And so as a result of that, both the Father and the Son are now our refuge. Which is exactly why David says in verse 9 that God is a refuge or a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. It's because now that Jesus is our refuge, we can also find refuge in the truth that God is the judge of all mankind. Because what that truth tells us, that God is the just judge who will right every wrong, even if we don't see it happen in this life, which more often than not we don't, do we? But even so, at the end of all things, the Lord will balance the scales of justice. And as a result, the justice that we all long for, that we all ache for, will be realized on that great day. And so you see, that's why we pray for Jesus to return. It's because when He comes, He will rescue us by judging all those who are wicked and evil and unrepentant. And as for us, well, on that great day, we will find refuge in Jesus. 
Because what happened on the cross is that Jesus took all of our judgment upon himself so that there is absolutely no judgment now left for us. But you see, that truth has implications for us even now. Because now that we are in Jesus, we are also children of the living God. And so just as earthly children trust their earthly fathers, that's the way it's supposed to be. As David says in verse 10, so too we trust in the Lord who is our heavenly Father. And we trust Him because we know Him. And we know His character. And what we know about Him is that He never forsakes those who seek Him. Verse 10. And what we also know about Him is that He is mindful of His children, as He says in verse 12. And so He hears our cries when we're afflicted. It's the same idea in verse 18 as well. That even though we will most likely be needy all of our days in this life, we shall not always be forgotten. Because even though the world may forget us. God never will. He will never forget us because our hope in Him will never perish. Because when the Father sends the Son to come again, all will be made right. In other words, what David is showing us here is that even though it may seem like the Lord has forgotten us, because we're surrounded by the injustice of our enemies at every turn. David tells us that our Father, in fact, has not forgotten us. Instead, the Lord remembers, and He knows, and He cares, because your heavenly Father is fully attentive to everything that you're going through. He's not dismissive of your sufferings, even though it may feel that way, and even though it may seem that way, He's not, because He cares for you, and He loves you. And you see, David knew that, which is exactly why he asks the Lord in verse 13 to be gracious to him. Be gracious to me, O God. It's because David knows that God will be gracious to him. David is confident of that. And so what David then asks of the Lord is for the Lord to rescue him. And you see, the reason why David asks to be rescued is not in an end in itself, but it's so that he can recount all of God's praises. Verse 14. So that he can rejoice in God's salvation. Because David's ultimate goal is for the Lord to be worshipped and praised. That's what he's devoted to. And so that's exactly why David ends with the prayer that he does in verses 19 and 20. David prays this prayer because he is jealous for the Lord's glory. And so he prays, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put fear in them, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. So you see, this isn't some 
personal vendetta for David. Instead, David is jealous for God to be honored as God. And so he prays for the Lord to open the eyes of the rebellious nations so that they can see that they are but men. They're but dust. And so that they can humble themselves before God Almighty. And Christians, we should be praying for the exact same thing. We should pray for God to show the nations that they are but men. We should pray that God opens the eyes of our own nation to see that they are but men. Because the sad truth is that our nation itself is one of God's enemies. But you see, David prays this prayer because he knows that God will, in fact, bring it about. Because when Jesus returns, what's going to happen is every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you see, the reason David knows that is because he's walking by faith and not by sight. Because he's remembering that God is worthy of praise. And he's remembering that God will judge his enemies. And he's remembering that God will rescue his people. And brothers and sisters, this is how we are to live as well. But you know, in closing, there's one very important thing that you need to understand. You need to realize that even as we fail to remember God as we should at times, and fail we will, God never, ever fails to remember us. Because as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Which means then that God will never forget you. Because if he did, then guess what he'd be doing? He'd be denying himself. Because you are now one with Christ. You're united to Christ by grace through faith. And so because that's true, even when we fail to remember him, know that he never fails to remember you. Because he hears your cries. And he knows your hopes. He sees your afflictions and he cares for you. And so since that's true, we can always trust him, no matter how dark the night becomes. And we can always sing the words of the old hymn writer, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bright light, the beacon of hope that your word is, that your character is, that your work is for us in the dark days that we currently find ourselves, both collectively and individually. And so, Father, we pray that you would do a work of faith in our 
hearts and in our lives so that we would remember all of these truths about who you are, that you're praiseworthy, that you're just, and that you rescue us. Father, above all, may our eyes be fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that he has his grip on us and nothing can shake us from it. And so, Father, with that confidence, may we live the lives that you have called us to. May we rejoice in living that way because we are your beloved children and we long to look like our heavenly Father. Empower us to that end so that we might take the gospel from this place to everyone that we come into contact with and that we might send your word to the ends of the earth. Thank you for how you will answer these prayers. We love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.